Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called A Brief Overview of Femicide with Dr. Myrna Dawson. Myrna Dawson is one of the most prominent femicide researchers in Canada, and she actually co-founded the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee in 2002. That was alongside Dr. Peter Jaffe, who we had on an earlier episode in an earlier season of She's Your Neighbor. You may have heard that episode. In this episode, Myrna talks about the definition of femicide. She discusses groups that have been disproportionately impacted by abuse, including older women, and she talks about the effects that the pandemic has had on rates of violence across Canada. This episode is part of our six-episode series called Understanding Femicide, which explores what happens when domestic violence becomes lethal. This conversation with Myrna was so eye-opening. There was something that she said in the episode that really stuck out to me, and that was that this work chooses you. You don't choose this work. And the reason that stuck out to me was because I think a lot of people who work in this field and who work in the VAW, the Violence Against Women sector, feel this way. You will find a lot of survivors who are doing this work and people who are passionate about this work for a variety of reasons. So if you are in that bucket, if you are listening to this episode and you are a service provider or you work in the field, maybe that's something that will also resonate with you in the episode. Regardless, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Uh, There's so much you can learn from Myrna Dawson, and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Now, before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence and abuse, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself, and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank Rogers for proudly sponsoring this series. Hi, Myrna. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, I'm really excited to talk to you. I've followed your work for a while now, so I'm, I'm really excited to have you here and get talking. That's great to hear. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So can you start by sharing a little bit about yourself for those listening? Yes, um, I'm a professor at the University of Guelph, and I'm a director of the Center for the Study of Social and Legal Responses to Violence. Uh, which is a center that I established at the University of Guelph in 2005. And two of our key projects that we run out of the center, one is uh, completed was the Canadian Domestic Homicide Prevention Initiative for Vulnerable Populations. And a current project that we run out of the center is the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability. I was a reporter in my first life and did a lot of work around violence against women. So it's really great to be able to do the research side of things in, in my second career. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that about you, actually. So that's that's pretty cool. So you're right at home here on the podcast then. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was a print reporter, so <laughs> I think we were more introverts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little different, but that's pretty yeah. cool. It's cool to learn about you. So today we're going to be talking about femicide, pretty serious topic. And I know one that uh, you've spent a lot of time working on. 
And I was hoping that we could just start with the very basics. And if you could just tell us what is femicide. Okay. And that is a, a really um, important question. I think the one that's being still debated. So at the most basic level, femicide refers to the killing of a woman or girl because, and I emphasize it because of their sex or gender. And femicide is considered the most extreme form of sex or gender-based violence and a human rights violation. I think, you know, it's important to understand that the term has been around since 1976 when the late feminist pioneer activist Diana Russell introduced it during some tribunals that she was testifying at globally. And then more recently, we've seen the rise of the term feminicide coming out of Latin America, which emphasizes more the complicity of governments and states in in facilitating femicide through their lack of action or impunity. So I preface this by saying that definitions are still evolving. There's still discussions and debates about how we should define femicide. But regardless of what culture, region, or discipline that you work within, there's a common agreement that femicide includes all forms of sexist killings, or what I refer to as killings of women and girls that involve sex or gender-related motivations or indicators. And we can get into some of, of that later in the podcast. But broadly, this means that the killings are rooted in the perpetrator's misogynist attitudes. Misogyny is the hatred of women or girls, or community and societal level acceptance of certain forms of violence against women. And this is why most definitions actually emphasize males as key perpetrators, because they focus on misogyny and misogyny facilitated by patriarchal social structures that are male-dominated. But some definitions of femicide do include female perpetrators. So more specifically, some of these motives center on women and girls as possessions, you know, i.e. they belong to a man, or women and girls as objects that can be used by men or men. And so intimate partner or family femicide, for example, clearly aligns with that view of women or girls as possessions. So if you think of the common explanations, um, and I put quotations around explanations for intimate partner or family femicide, is perceived infidelity or separation. So clearly a male reacts in these situations because they see the woman or girl as a possession. And then sexual femicide is a common example of of killings that see women as objects to be used by men for sexual purposes or sexual pleasure. Now, of course, intimate partner and family femicide and sexual femicide are not mutually exclusive. There would be overlaps, Um, but that's sort of getting at some of, of the definitions. And I think, you know, there's some people that would argue that all killings of women and girls are femicide because we live in a patriarchal social structure. But the work that we do, we really we start with tracking all killings of women and girls. But it's our hope to sort of really dig down into emphasizing those cases where there's clear indicators so people can understand better the context surrounding femicide and femicidal motivations. Thank you. That's really helpful to kind of pull that apart and talk about it a little bit more because I I have heard different definitions of femicide kind of tossed around. And I think it's important that we're kind of clear what we're talking about here and and what your work focuses on, too. Well, and I think it's, you know, it's hard because a lot of the discussions take place in, in in the media and social media. And it's really hard to get really deep down into some of those more detailed nuances that are required to understand what we mean by femicide. And so we often see that very general definition as the killing of women and girls because they're women and girls, but there's so much research out there in Canada and North America and Latin America that indicators, listings of indicators that more clearly say, well, this is a femicide because... Thank you. Yeah, I think that is really important too. And I'm glad, you know, we kind of have this platform here that we can discuss it a little more long form too and, and get to what some of those nuances are. So I'm also wondering if you could 
talk about how femicide has impacted your life. I know you've done this work for a while, and I, I'm curious what you have to say about that. Yeah, so I, you know, I think, you know, I, I remember being at a conference one time and someone said people who work in the violence against women sector, whether it's research or, or advocacy or activism, that this work chooses you as opposed to you choosing this work. And I really feel that's, that's reflective of, of my situation as well. I mean, when I was an undergraduate student, I heard about a, a group of women in Ontario that were actually launching a research project in Ontario. And it was a group called the Women We Honor Action Committee. And it was a feminist grassroots initiative, eight women that got together supporting each other because they each had experienced the killing of a woman in their care. And so providing each other with emotional support. And they decided at that time that they would look for funding to look at this issue more closely in Ontario. And they did that. And in the mid 1990s, I got involved with their group as a graduate student. So at a basic sort of academic level, I I understood um, the concept of femicide and intimate femicide, which is what they were focusing on. But at the same time as I then moved into graduate school, I hadn't sort of experienced it in, in a sort of more concrete way, but I was working, as we, all, as we often do through grad school, I was working at a coffee shop in Toronto that was located below a very high-end um, department store. And you get to know all the clients that would come in and people that would come in. And there was always this group of women that came in that worked in, in, in retail in this high-end store. And some of them were just amazing. You would laugh and joke and you had a relationship in that environment, not usually without outside the environment. But one day I went into work and, a group of women came down and, and this one woman was absent and they were crying and I was sort of not knowing what was going on and one of them came over to get their coffee and they said she was killed last night by her partner. And I was shocked because I think for me this, you know, this was the first time I had really been faced with knowing someone quite well and then finding out that they had been killed by their male partner. But also because I had done enough work at that time on violence against women to know that this woman was in contrast to the stereotypes that we have of women who experience violence. Her and her partner didn't have children. They were, you know, fairly well off. They traveled all over the place. They reportedly had a good relationship, etc. So it was quite a shock. And I think at that point, I always think of her when I'm doing this work to make sure that I stay grounded in the work, because you have to remember that there's real women when you're doing the research, there's real women involved in some of those numbers that you're talking about. I think that's really important. I think so too. And I think it's so interesting. You talk about how she didn't fit the stereotype and, and that's really with she is your neighbor. We try and talk about that as well as, you know, it can happen to anybody in any neighborhood, regardless of your background. Uh, we often see certain women kind of portrayed when we're talking about domestic violence uh, and femicide. We think they might look or act or, or be a certain type of woman. And we know that that's just not the truth. Yeah, it can happen to anyone. And I think that's why when you see people say, I, I can't believe this happened in my neighborhood, it can happen in any neighborhood. Now, I know there are some groups who have been disproportionately impacted by domestic violence and femicide. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about who that is. Yeah, and I think that's a really important question because we often think of femicide risk as being sort of homogenous across um, women and girls, and it really is disproportionate for some groups in particular. And the concept of intersectionality, I think, is important here because we all have multiple identities and being a woman or girl is just one of them. So if you think about some of our other social identities, being an Indigenous woman or girl is often something that will put um, a groups at increased risk. And we know that in Canada, for example, that Indigenous women and girls range from between four to five times higher than their proportion in the population. Now, 
I think it's important here to talk about data quality because sometimes data quality surrounding race, ethnicity, indigenous status, um, even relationship status is really poor, both in our data sometimes we're missing, but also in official data. And so this is really a minimum estimate of the risk of Indigenous women and girls. And then, you know, with the data quality issues, one of the things that happens is we know very little about other races, such as Black femicide risk, South Asian risk, etc. And that's one of the things we're trying to draw attention to is, is the risk of according to race or ethnicity. There's another age for sure has always been noted as a risk factor and those between 18 and 54 years of age, women and girls are usually at a disproportionate risk of femicide. But what we're noticing in recent years is that older women, which is classified differently depending on who's doing the study, but it can be 55 plus or 65 plus, older women are emerging as a risk factor as well. So in 2019, for example, they were one of the largest um, victim groups in Canada, which is really concerning, I think, because we know that we have an aging population and that aging population it becomes more vulnerable. So if we're already seeing the risk according to age, then it's something that we really need to pay attention to. And you know, often older women are victimized by intimate partners, but we also see sons as perpetrators. And so that's something that we want to pay a bit of attention to. And of course, they're also at risk of, of stranger femicide as well. I think rurality is something that we need to focus on in Canada as well. We have a we have a large rural population, depending on what country we're, what region of the country we're in. But we know that, for example, in our last report, that about 45% of those living in rural areas or small towns were at an increased risk compared to those in urban centers. And so I think it's important that we understand that rurality poses a particular type of risk, social isolation, geographic isolation, lack of access to resources. And so that's something we also need to pay attention to. Firearms is a very controversial issue. It's very pertinent to the rural context in terms of understanding the risk of firearms. Stabbing and and shooting has competed for the top spot of method of killing for homicide more generally. And that's the same case for femicide as well. But when you move into rural areas and then for female victims, it becomes even more of an issue. And I guess two other things I would note is that perpetrator suicide often follows intimate partner femicide. And so um, there's a higher proportion of perpetrators who die by suicide after these events. And so we need to pay attention to why that is. And it's often among older populations. And then finally, femicides or killings of women with femicidal motivations often lead to multiple victims in the killing. So children, new partners, other family members, etc. So we lose women, but we also lose the often the extended network of women as well. That's really interesting. And I think that sometimes can be a bit confusing. I know it's confused me at times too, is who is then always captured in that definition of femicide or, you know, we might be talking about, unfortunately, a woman whose children are killed, but the woman wasn't killed herself. And you and I had talked before about collateral victims of femicide and secondary victims. And from, I believe what you were telling me is they're not captured in the count of femicide, but they're still kind of worth talking about. And I wondered if you uh, could share a little bit more about why this is. Yeah, so we are noticing more research on collateral victims of homicide more generally, but also of femicide. And I think partly that's why the reason is that sometimes femicidal motivations can be part of why children are killed if it's in revenge to a woman who might be leaving a relationship. 
parents um, or in-laws can be caught up in an event that takes place in the home just by virtue of trying to protect a woman. And often the, the woman, the primary target, doesn't end up dead. But those situations or those incidences are still caused by femicidal motivations, whether it's a hatred of, of the woman for a particular reason, whether she's trying to leave, whether there was a history of violence. There are those secondary victims or collateral victims that, we, that often aren't counted but certainly are part of the count and the impact of femicide more broadly. Thanks for elaborating on that. And then the other interesting, well, there's a lot of interesting things you said there, and I think just important things to note when we're talking about who is impacted. But you talked about older women as well, and that's kind of the opposite. They might not have children. Uh, They might kind of be in a bit of a different category there. But I know there has been a rise in femicides relating to older women. And you mentioned sometimes it's a family member too, like a son. And I know that's something we've seen in our shelters is older women coming into shelter. And that's sometimes a surprise to general public. It was a surprise to me when I first started working at Women's Crisis Services, how older women are impacted and often by families. And I wondered if you could share a little bit more about why this is. Well, I think... You know, there's a number of factors with older populations, and certainly, you know, elderly men are at risk of homicide as well. But it's interesting if we think about the risk over our life course. Men, as we know, are at higher risk of homicide than women are in most age groups. But when we get to this older age group, 65 plus, for example, older women are actually at an increased risk of homicide or femicide compared to older men. And in part, this has to do probably with the fact that women will live longer than men. We know that statistically women live for at least six years longer on average than men. So, But this also means that they're potentially living in marginalized situations. Often their incomes are lower. They've relied on, on a male partner who may no longer be there. So they're now being the care of children, for example, and sons. And so there's a, an increased vulnerability in terms of the longer age span. And plus, we know that women are at more of an increased risk of violence from people that they know compared to men. So this extends into their later years, but their later years are also seeing them more vulnerable and marginalized because of low incomes, poverty, and just you know an inability to support themselves and having to rely on family members, which creates a, a power dynamic. Thanks. That that does make a lot of sense. It's really unfortunate to hear, but I think it's important that we talk about it and kind of understand that reality, especially as you mentioned, our population, uh, the age is increasing. So I think it is definitely important that we talk about, think about. Something else I wanted to ask you about is I know there has been quite a rise in domestic violence and femicide over the last couple of years throughout the pandemic. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little more about what is happening here. Yeah, so we, we, you know, we've seen globally, and this has been something underscored across the world, and, and Canada is no difference. We've seen a rise in domestic violence situations. With respect to femicide, for example, in 2021, which was the last year that we had the most complete data, there was 36 more deaths in 2021 compared to 2019, which is the pre-pandemic year. And that's a 26% increase. And the numbers for 2022 are, are not looking any better. They're not declining. I'm always cautious, though, about noting increases like this because homicides tend to fluctuate over time. But given that we're looking at a three-year period now and they're continuing to sort of inch up, then I think it is something that we need to be concerned about. And I think 
The other thing that we want to note is that the circumstances are not necessarily changing. So the same people are at increased risk. It's similar patterns and similar characteristics as it was pre-pandemic, but we're seeing more of them. And I think because of that, it's really important to note that it's, it's not necessarily the pandemic that is the, you know, the direct contributor. While the pandemic has certainly played a role, male violence against women was already a pandemic, as you know, before COVID-19. And so the pandemic has not turned a bunch of previously nonviolent men into violent men. It's made situations worse in some cases, exacerbating violence that was likely already ongoing in the lives of women and children. But we have repeated lockdowns, lack of access to services and shelters, as well as tense home environments because we see declining jobs, declining wages. And this has contributed to the increase. And these are just some of the challenges that have been posed by the pandemic. And while we're not in lockdowns right now, which caused families to be in close proximity for longer stretches of time, we're still in the pandemic and there's still great uncertainty. So people are frustrated and worried over unemployment, their health restrictions on services and mobility, and just, you know, a multitude of factors that are contributing to stress. And I guess the other thing is women who are disproportionately impacted in domestic violence incidences, you know, before the pandemic, they had strategies probably that helped them deal with or, you know, at least keep to a minimum the violence that they were experiencing and ways to keep their children safe. The pandemic has thrown a wrench into some of these strategies, probably, because some of the ways that they did this are probably not accessible to them. And this was particularly the case during lockdowns. But, you know, we don't have the lockdowns now, but some women may not be working. They may be home more. They have less interaction with other colleagues, etc. So the impacts are still there. And we're going to see the impacts, especially the economic impacts on women um, for some years to come, which is quite concerning. It is concerning. And I think it's also interesting and important to note that these aren't, you know, sporadic things happening just because the pandemic started. People didn't just become violent. You mentioned, you know, this is usually slowly increasing over time. It's violence that's escalating. It was already there. And I think it's a myth that people often just kind of snap one day. Um, That's not usually the case. Um, so I, I think that's kind of important. I'm really glad you mentioned it and we can kind of talk about that a bit more. Yeah, and if I could just underscore that point, I think it has concerned me to see sort of the strong correlation between COVID and violence against women. And I'm really not a big fan of the term shadow pandemic because it makes it feel like that violence against women wasn't actually there before COVID. And I think, you know, it is a pandemic that has affected primarily one purport, one portion of the population. And so we haven't had much of a focus on it. If we link COVID to the violence that's happening, then that means we think that when COVID is over, that the violence stops. And that's certainly not going to be the case. And the impacts of COVID are going to be um, around for some time to come. That is so true. And I think, um, you know, that's why shelters like ours anyways are kind of figuring out what we're going to do next. We've been looking at a transitional housing because the emergency shelters are filling up. So where are people going to go next? That doesn't look like the backlog is slowing down anytime soon, you know, increasing our outreach services um, and trying to make a plan for moving forward because it's not just now, it's going to continue, unfortunately, is, is how it looks. Exactly. And I mean, some of the shelters and outreach services, it was really amazing efforts that that occurred during lockdown to try to provide services to women in a different context. And and they're still pivoting and trying to figure out how to do that. And I think that takes a great toll as well on the frontline services. Um, So which means it's, you know, more important now than ever for the government to sort of, you know, support um, the direct services that women and children are receiving. For sure. 
I'm also wondering, Myrna, if you could talk a bit about um, how this work has kind of impacted you. I know you've done work with Canadian Femicide Observatory for a long time now, um, and it's heavy work. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about what that's been like for you and, and how you stay motivated. Well, uh, I, th- I think th- it depends on the day that you ask me about this question. I do stay motivated, um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't days that I really lose hope. And one of my favorite characters from my youth is Anna Green Gables. And she used to use a term called depths of despair. There are some days that I just truly feel the depths of despair because I feel like sometimes we're saying the same things, we're doing the same things, but little is changing. But then what happens is I'll hear from someone who has, you know, maybe read something or seen something that I wrote and they'll say that it really helped them understand, you know, the issue better. I'll hear from women who say your work is really important. It's made a difference. And, you know, I I guess it just takes one or two of those individuals every now and then to sort of keep me going. And and on my worst days, I, I know that there's people that are experiencing even worse situations than I am. So I think I just pick myself up and and I keep going. But that kind of undermines the vicarious trauma that many of us in this field actually experience. As we focus on these issues so intensely and we go from year to year and sometimes feel like we're talking about the same issues, it's, it's really difficult to move ahead from that. But at the same time, there's such a a solidarity of women's movements across the world. It's it's really quite encouraging. Um, you see different. You see people weaving women's names. You see quilts being produced with with victims of femicide. You see mothers, you know, sort of um, marching to bring attention to the to the loss of their daughters. So there's always some place that you can find a little bit of inspiration. And on the on the bad days, that's I I really look for that. But you know, I think we all have our ups and downs. But Change takes time. There's a Chinese proverb that change takes 100 years, and we're not even halfway through that 100 years, I don't think. So I think we had to focus on the baby steps, and there has been baby steps. You know, for example, femicide has hardly been talked about, uh, but now we hear that term much more in the public discussions. And so I hang on to those things, and, and I'm sure you have your ways of dealing with some of that vicarious trauma issues as well. Yeah, for sure. I think it is really difficult to hear these stories and and to read about them. And the work you do especially is even heavier because we're talking about deaths. But yeah, it, I think it's hard. And I think we kind of all have our way. But, you know, if we stop talking about it and we don't keep going with this work, it, it's not going to get any better. So I think it's, it's really important that exactly. we do that. Yeah, you have to have hope because if you don't have hope, I'm not quite sure what you're left with. So we keep hoping. Yeah, I totally agree. And I was wondering if you could also share a bit, for those who don't know much about the Canadian Femicide Observatory, could you share a little bit about what it does, what its role is? Yes. So so the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability is, you know, for lack of a better description, it's a web-based research and information centre. And so our goal is to conduct research related to femicide, but also to mobilize and exchange that knowledge, to promote knowledge and research that's being done, not just in Canada, but across the world. And in that way, sort of contribute to violence prevention or femicide prevention. And so our main goal is to bring a visible and national focus to femicide in Canada. And one way we do this is to bring all the information into a single location where people can go and get information on femicide in Canada and more broadly, and then to try to facilitate research agendas on femicide in particular. So, for example, we have a project on femicide in the media. We've done some work on older women and femicide. 
Um, and we've also done work around court responses to femicide. So I work with various students at my center at the University of Guelph, but we're also supported by a 40-member expert advisory panel, which is institutional members across the country in different regions and from different sectors. And so they very much help identify some of the issues that we want to focus on, some of the concepts that we might want to bring out more clearly, etc. And then one of the things that we've really emphasized a lot is primary prevention, because I think we need to change attitudes. And in order to change attitudes, we need to communicate with the public in a way that gets the message across. Um, this year, we do the Femicide Is Prevention Campaign, which I mentioned, sort of you know, describing to people, what do we mean when we say femicide? How does it capture how and why women are killed? So I think that sort of gets at a lot of our activities. And as part of that, we track the number of women and girls that are killed in Canada. And we track all women and girls, but then now that we're almost five years into this work, we're starting to identify those ones that are more clearly femicide. So those ones that are really distinct in how, how women and girls are compared to how men and boys are killed. And I think one of the interesting experiences that I had when we first started this was most of the people on the expert advisory panel are people who've done this work you know, for quite a bit of time and from across the country. But even they were shocked at how many women were killed in Canada, because if something happens in BC and you're in the East Coast, sometimes it doesn't register. You know, I, I remember a couple of the members saying how profoundly they were impacted by recognizing just how often it occurred. And I think that's what we're trying to sort of underscore with our public education campaigns is it happens much more often than we think we do. And Canada has a problem with femicide just like any other country in the world. Yeah, I agree. I think I know with our work here in Waterloo Region, we're trying to, you know, just underscore that domestic violence is happening and femicide is the most severe end of it, right? Like this is when violence completely escalates and this is, you know, the worst thing that can happen. So I think it's just so important for people to understand, like not only is domestic violence happening, but femicides are happening and they're happening quite frequently and it's scary. It's happening all across Canada. And I, I do think it's something that's just really not talked about enough. I think people aren't aware of it and it's it's just such a big problem. So it really needs to be kind of shouted from the rooftops, in my opinion. Yes. And I think, you know, we do make a lot of effort to underscore that femicide is the tip of the iceberg. It represents, you know, thousands of women across the country that are living with violence. And it's a way for us to draw attention to that, that prevention really means preventing femicide, but it's preventing violence against women and girls in particular so that it doesn't lead to femicide. So it's, you know, femicide is, is really just a very small proportion of, of what women are living with and children in this country. And so talking about that, you talked about prevention um, and something I always like to ask guests is, you know, what can we do as friends, family and neighbors? This is called She Is Your Neighbor. So um, I really think there is something each of us can do um, in order to prevent this from happening. So I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what we can all do. Yeah, and I think that's a great question. And I think it's really great to see this emphasis on community because we really do need the community involved in the prevention of violence against women and children. I think the first thing for me that we all can do is self-education. We need to begin with ourselves in terms of understanding so we can discuss it in an informed way with others, what we're actually talking about. So being an informed individual, looking for information to help us understand what we mean when we talk about violence against women and girls, what we mean when we talk about gender equality, inequality being a root cause. So self-education is a start. And then, you know, sometimes it feels overwhelming to think about what we can do, but there's so much we can do as individuals. And I think the small steps and the many small steps are just as important as the big steps. And those small steps are actually working with your small circle. 
And I think working with your small circle is actually the most difficult. And I've had lots of difficult conversations with my small circle. You know, I exist in the university environment, which tends to be progressive in many things. But sometimes when you step outside of that circle of people that understand what violence against women is or femicide is, you realize that there's still very much work to be done in terms of public education. And so starting with your family and your friends, you know, taking on those difficult topics, but making sure that you understand and aren't sort of attacking. It's about learning how to talk about these issues in a way that doesn't make people defensive, but rather makes them ask for more. And I I think that's really that's really key, and, and everyone can do that. Prevention, I think, starts young. Parents can really impact the lives of girls and boys growing up if they talk about healthy relationships, demonstrate healthy relationships. What does it mean to say there's a healthy relationship? What does it mean to say that a, a boy is maybe teasing a girl in a way that's that's the beginning of a continuum of, you know, abuse in later life. So, you know, talking to kids, I think, is really important. And in particular, um, boys, teenage boys, but also girls. I mean, it takes two people to make a healthy relationship. So both have to understand that. So those are some of the main things that I would say that we all can do. Paying attention to what's going on in our community is always key. I mean, I grew up on Prince Edward Island and I grew up in a farming community on Prince Edward Island. And, you know, I realized now there was probably people in my community that were experiencing violence, but I just, I didn't know it. And, you know, different communities have different challenges. And so just being aware and being, you know, being, you know, connecting with your neighbor and and seeing if they're all right, if you haven't seen them for a few days, all these things, you know, safely um, checking in on people, I think is important. So we often think we can't do a lot. There's so much we can do. And I think our, I think the biggest change will actually be from the ground up. It'll be from the community and it'll be from individuals who were educating themselves and then just trying to educate others one step at a time. I completely agree. I, I think it's baby steps. I know there's a long road ahead, but I really do think if we all, you know, take some personal responsibility and believe there really is something we can all do, I think it will eventually make a bigger impact. So Uh, Thank you so much for being here today, Myrna. It was so great to chat with you. Um, And we learned a lot. I know I learned a lot, so I'm sure everyone listening did. So thank you so much. Well, and I always learn a lot when I'm talking to other people too. So thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Of course. Thank you. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or Twitter and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.